Thanks for joining us for another inspiring message from Elevate Church in Perth, Australia. For more information about Elevate Church or to contact us, head to our website, elevatechurch.me and take us wherever you go by downloading our Elevate Church AU app, available wherever you download your apps. Hey, good morning. Well, it's great to have you all here this morning. As Karen mentioned, we're launching a new series. It's called The Good Work. And so you're jumping right in on the front end of that. And I'm really expectant about what God's going to do in this series. Really looking at the story of a guy named Nehemiah, someone that God called to do a good work. Uh, And my big idea this morning is very simple. It's not my original language. It's a little bit smarter than I would have said it. So I'll steal someone else's smarter way of saying it. And the big idea is simply this. You were born on purpose for a purpose. And if you don't know that, then I'm glad you're here. You were born on purpose for a purpose. Now, here's the the reality. It's one thing to say that you were born on purpose for a purpose. Yet here is the current reality. We are not, you and me, yet fully living out that purpose. And that's not to be judgy. I mean, it just makes sense. If we were all already living out that purpose, then we wouldn't be teaching this series. We could teach four weeks to better chess because this wouldn't be what mattered. But what matters in a real sense of what God wants for us is to get a greater clarity on what that purpose is in our lives and, and then with that, a greater courage and a greater conviction of how we would more effectively live out that purpose in our lives. And I'm aware that, that some people, and this could be true for some of you, that the thing that's holding you back from fully living out God's purpose in your life could be things like you don't think you're gifted enough. You've got someone in your life that you know and they're super gifted and you spend time evaluating your own giftedness and you've just think, boy, I'm, I'm terrible compared to them. And so that's holding you back. Maybe, maybe you actually have stepped out in faith in the past and things haven't worked out. And so you thought, oh man, I just shot my shot and that's it. And I'm not going to get another shot. And yet that's not how God operates. Maybe you, you're living in relative obscurity. You think, well, I'm just a you know, domestic CEO. Oh, I'm just an admin in my job. I'm just a school teacher. I'm just a retired person. I'm just a uni student. And if any of these things are true for you or things like this are true for you, then I've got one word of encouragement for you this morning. Nehemiah. Nehemiah is proof positive that God loves to do extraordinary things through very ordinary people. The thing about Nehemiah is he wasn't a king. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a prophet. And those three occupations are kind of like the the history is full of superstars who were kings, who were priests, and who were prophets. And then there's Nehemiah. Nehemiah was none of those things. In fact, Nehemiah, his job at the time that he gets brought out In history, his job was he was a cupbearer to the king of Persia. Now, that's kind of not 
a job title that you see on seek.com these days, cupbearer. A cupbearer is kind of like a personal butler, if you want to you know, look, look at it as a also not job that you see very often on seek, personal butler. But he was a personal butler. But cupbearer, it was even more than that. It was a very specialist personal butler role because what would happen back then is, is kings and people in power, you know, they were, they were quite, it's quite common for assassination attempts to be plotted against rulers. And one of the ways that they could do that is through poisoning the, the ruler. And so the cupbearer's job was to sample everything before it was given to the king. And if the cupbearer died, the king didn't eat or drink that. And if the cupbearer survived, then the king would eat or drink that. So that was his gig. Cupbearer to the king. Sounds glamorous. You got to live in the palace. But every day was a potential suicide mission. Not only that, he was a Jewish man, a Jewish person from Jerusalem, and yet... The, 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 the king that he was serving and the, and the palace that he was living and working in was 1,500 kilometers away from where God ultimately called him to do this. So this was a very ordinary man working in a very ordinary job in relative obscurity, and yet none of those things cropped him out of God calling him to do the good work. And there's going to be three, broadly speaking, three groups this morning and over these next four weeks as we teach this series. There's going to be a group of you that you already have a reasonable level of clarity on your calling, a reasonable level of clarity on the good work that God's called you to. And if that is you and you're in that group, then fantastic. Yet don't think that that means you've arrived. Because even if you're in the sweet spot, even if you're in that place doing the good work that God's called you to do, then my prayer for you is over these four weeks that there would be insight and revelation of how you can be even more effective in doing the good work that you're already doing. There's going to be a a group in the middle, and you know what the good work is, but you haven't started it yet. And there could be reasons for that. They could be circumstantial. It could be fear, anxiety. It could be previous rejection and failure. It could be reasons. And if you're in that group and you've got a, you've got a sense of what God's calling you to do, and yet you're not doing it, then, I, then my prayer is over these three to four weeks is that you're going to get infused with a new courage that's going to see you take the next step in your journey doing the good work. And then there's going to be a group that, that, that you're like, God's got a good work for me. I don't even have the first clue what that is. Well, lock in to these four weeks. Lock in to the teaching. Uh, Karen's going to loop back up later on and point you to some resources we're going to make available to you because we don't want you to stay stuck in the place of not doing the good work. So let's, if you've got our Elevate app, you can tap on that and uh, Logic suggests that you're probably going to discover yourself in Nehemiah chapter 1, the beginning. Here's the backstory before we pick up from chapter 1. The backstory is in 586 BC, the Babylonians, led by an evil king named Nebuchadnezzar, uh, had actually routed Jerusalem, had taken the Jews captive and shipped them off to Babylonia. 
Not only that, did, did, they, did they take them away from their homeland of Jerusalem, they actually raised Jerusalem, which is one of those words that means the opposite of what you think it means. They actually destroyed homes, buildings, walls, gates, and with that, destro- destroyed economies, jobs, opportunities, culture, generations, and shipped them off to live in captivity. And eventually, about 50,000 Jewish people made their way back to Jerusalem. But effectively, they were making their way back to nothing, to rubble. Solomon's temple was once majestic, and yet it was now in ruins. The homes of their families and their forefathers destroyed, the wall in disrepair. And they set their own personal sites to complete the good work of rebuilding Jerusalem. And they got, they got started, and yet they eventually found themselves hitting, pun intended, a brick wall. <laughs> Sounded a lot funnier when I was preparing it this week. Maybe that's because you don't know the story. That's okay. I'm glad you're here. But their efforts stalled out. And so after about 140 years from when the, the Babylonians first destroyed Jerusalem, this is where I want us to pick up the story. Verse 2 of the book that's named after the guy, the ordinary guy, that God called to do the good work. Han and I, one of my brothers, this is Nehemiah speaking, had just arrived from Judah with some fellow Jews, arrived at the king of Persia's palace, okay? Family visit. I asked them about the conditions among the Jews there who had survived the exile and about Jerusalem, and they told me the exile survivors who were left there in the province, in Jerusalem, are in bad shape. <clears throat> Conditions are appalling. And the wall of Jerusalem is still rubble. The city gates are still cinders. And so here's a question, and this is a question I asked about team members this morning. What's your default response when you see a problem? What's your default response when you see a gap? Is it to point at the gap and criticize? Is it to form the critic committee in the corner of the coffee shop and talk about amongst yourselves all the things that are wrong as if somehow that's going to make things better? Or is it to say, God, I've observed that there's a gap. I've noticed that there's a problem. And I wonder if you could and would use me to be a part of solving that problem, a part of rebuilding that gap. And at the risk of a spoiler, if Nehemiah had taken the first option, he heard about the people, he heard about the wall that was in rubble, that the gates were in cinders. If he decided just to get together with his brother and their, and their merry men, and go and have a coffee and talk about the gap. Let me, let me just, let me just, I don't know. This might sound wild and crazy to you, but I don't think we'd be reading about him right now. I don't think anybody would have bothered recording that conversation in the dark corner of the coffee shop. The critic committee, self appointed. So, at the risk of a spoiler, you'd almost have to think that Nehemiah chose the second option to say to God, I heard about a problem. I heard about a gap. And I wonder if you could and would use me 
to be a part of that solution? Well, then it should come as no surprise to you that Nehemiah said, when I heard this, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. When Nehemiah heard about a problem, heard about a gap, his first response was to cry. His first response was to let that get so deep into his heart that it caused him to cry. Now, I taught a series on Nehemiah about eight years ago. I was one year into leading here, uh, and it was about eight years ago. It was called Change Your World in 52 Days. And I asked this question, and I'm going to ask it of you this morning. What makes you cry? Because that's actually a clue to your calling. What makes you cry? Now, just a little bit of fun fact. Sometimes it's good to look back in the past and have a little giggle. Because when I taught this eight years ago, when I asked this question, what made you cry? Monday morning, an email dropped into my inbox with the subject line, here's what makes me cry from someone in the church. And I thought to myself, oh man, I tell you what, when you preach a message and God takes that message and it stirs someone's heart to cause them to want to reach out to you and give you some feedback about what's going on. It is so encouraging. I mean, if you've never been a preacher, let me just, just take my word for it. When someone does that, here's an email. What makes me cry? And I'm like, oh, man, I can't wait to read this. Monday morning, pick me up, you know, like, yeah. And the email was a list of all of the things that they didn't like about me and my leadership style. <laughs> Titled, Things That Make Me Cry. So, look, eight years later... Don't be that guy. <laughs> Do not send that email. That is not how this question is meant to play out in your heart and your life. Because if you do, I will meet you for a coffee like I did with them. And you will no longer be a part of this church like they are not. Sometimes the key in effective leadership is just outlasting them. <laughs> but have you ever seen a problem or a gap and kind of scratched your head and thought to yourself, just initially, I wonder why that hasn't been fixed? Or you scratch your head and you think, has no one else noticed this? And anyone ever done that? Like, come on, has, anyone else, has no one else noticed this? And, and if so, great. Maybe no one else has noticed that. And let that fuel your frustration. Maybe, maybe no one else has noticed it because God's wired you in such a way that you were the first person to notice it. And not only that you were the first person to notice it, the reason he's wired you in the first, that, that way in the first place, that caused you to be the first person that noticed it and wonder why no one else has noticed it. And why hasn't somebody done something about it is because maybe, just maybe, that somebody is you. That, that you are uniquely wired, uniquely gifted, uniquely experienced. The reason your lenses has picked up on that when seemingly oh, no one else seems to have noticed this, maybe it's because that's your good work. For me, 
I was in the corporate world, uh, felt a call to the church world and, you know, whatever that looked like. I didn't know at the time. So I resigned in the corporate world. I went to Bible college and uh, thankfully, and God uh, allowed me to be part of a, the leadership of a, a great church uh, for many, many years. And yet, uh, for about the last eight years in my role at that church, I felt God was going to kind of cause me eventually to jump out of the nest and lead my own church. And um, one of the things that made and still makes me cry is that one of the number one things that keeps some people away from following Jesus is the church. And, and, and I didn't say that to say, I didn't say that to sound elitist. I'm, I'm just saying my observations is, is one of the obstacles to Jesus is some expressions of the church. That, that some people who aren't yet followers of Jesus, if you ask them to describe their perception of the church, they might talk in terms of, oh, the church, the, the, we don't know what they're for, we only know what they're against. Oh, the church, oh, that, that's that, that, that infighting, lack of trust, cynical bunch that play games and politics and cliques. I heard about a, a church where uh, a lady rolled into the car park and got out of the car on a Sunday morning wearing what looked like she'd probably been wearing through the night, forget my drift, and turned up in the church parking lot on the Sunday morning and walked up to the door of that church, never been there before, looking pretty unkempt, a little bit unsavory, and one of the greeters said to her, is that the best outfit you've got? That is simply not acceptable here. And that lady spun 180 degrees, sprinted to her car, and bolted out of the car park. And I thought to myself when I heard that story, there's an expression that is attributed to the church world. It's called your Sunday best. And you can be wearing your Sunday best on the outside and yet have a toxic, polluted spirit on the inside. You know we have a dress code here at Elevate? Yeah, it's called please wear clothes. Amen. That's it. That's all we ask. You have to wear shoes, but clothes. Quiet, please. But that sort of story and those sorts of perceptions make me cry. And they make me cry to the point where I say, God, if and when you give me the opportunity to lead a church, I want to be leading a church that's known for what we are for than what we're against. Who we are for, not who we're against. Where politics... I by the way, when people say politics, they don't even have a clue what they're talking about. Oh, there's the politics in the church. I say, what, is, what do you mean by that? Huh? <laughs> where, where trust is the currency of communication and relationships. Where, you, where it's okay to not be okay. 
where you can come as you are. And I said, God, and here's the thing, that we will not be a perfect church, and all the while, we won't pretend that we are. Yet, when you come as you are, and when it's okay to not be okay, that we will be sort of people that are so... uh, passionate about following Jesus, that transformation becomes normal. That it's okay to not be okay, and yet there's also hope and truth and grace that comes packaged with that, where you walk in and you become a part of the church that God, if you give me the opportunity to lead one day, we will be some place that you can journey following Jesus, and as in when you do, you'll experience transformation. And that will become your new normal. That's the stuff that made and makes me cry. So Nehemiah went on. When I heard this about the wall, I sat down and wept. I mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. If it's big enough to cry about, it's big enough to pray about. Nehemiah, his first instinct after this news, this truth, this gap, this problem penetrated his heart after he cried and, and, and opened his heart to the God of heaven, he then immediately defaulted into prayer. And the prayer that he prayed was one of 12 recorded prayers in this book of Nehemiah, which has, makes you kind of have to think if there's 12 that are recorded, it suggests there was probably more that weren't recorded. And so what we have is, is an exemplar of someone who who realized that to do the good work that God's called him to, he needed more than just to be smart and intelligent, though he was those things, to just be a great leader, though he was, to just have a great strategy, though he did, to just have an incredible conviction, though he demonstrated that, to have laser-like focus, and we're going to come to that, and he had that as well. Yet he knew that all of those things packaged together were not going to be enough if it wasn't, going to be that it's Nehemiah plus the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, working together with his power and his strength. This wasn't going to get done. And so he was a prayer. I said, God, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, loyal to his covenant and faithful to those who love him and obey his commands. Look at me. Listen to me. Pay attention to this prayer of your servant that I'm praying day and night in intercession for your servants, the people of Israel, confessing my sins, the sins of the people of Israel, and I'm including myself. I and my ancestors among those who have sinned against you. And then he knew that in order for him to go and be used by God to do the good work of rebuilding the wall, that he had to approach the king and, and ask for the king's favor. So he kept praying before he went to the king. He shifted the focus of his prayers and asked God, God, give me favor in the eyes of the king. Oh, master, listen to me. Listen to your servant's prayer. And yes, to all your servants who delight in honoring you and make me successful today that I will get what I want from the king. Some people get tripped over in church world about this word success. They think it's a Tony Robbins word. They think it's a, the, the shopping channel word. Buy this new book and you'll experience success in life. And then, oh no, the success, that's, 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 a, that's a secular word. No, it's not a church word. It's not a Bible word. Come on now. 
Really? Not a, not a, not a God word? Really? So, 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 so you're saying success is not a God word. Okay, fine. What's the opposite of success? Uh, failure? Okay, good. So what you're telling me is God calls us to do something, but he's not into success. In fact, the sign that God was in it is that he's called you to it and you failed. <laughs> success is a Bible word. Success is a God word. In fact, if God wants anybody to be successful with anything, it's his people fulfilling the good work that he's called them to. So pray for success. Captain Obvious drops mic, drinks coffee. <laughs> Sliding over to chapter two, and the king then asked me, so what do you want? I'm praying under my breath, still praying, to the God of heaven. I said, if it please the king, and if the king thinks well of me, Send me to Judah, Jerusalem, to the city where my family is buried so that I can rebuild it. Um, a couple of years ago, I preached a message called The Question That Changes Everything. And I use the analogy of my swim squad, where my swim squad has three lanes, and you swim in a particular lane depending on your level of swim competency. And lane one is the nufty lane, the, the just barely escaping drowning lane. <laughs> lane two is the intermediate lane, and then lane three is the fish lane. And, and so if you want to join our swim squad, it's fine. And you don't have maybe a swim background, you, you, can, you can jump in lane one, and it's great. And the coach will work with you on your technique, and you'll be getting fitter as, if, if you turn up consistently. And maybe, just maybe, you'll graduate into lane two. And by the way, if you've got some aptitude and apply yourself and keep working on it, maybe, just maybe, you'll join and be able to tack on the back end behind the tail fins of the fish in lane three. And here's the thing. Lane one's great. It's great. I mean, you're in, so it's great. But I, I liken lane one to the question that, that many people ask of God. God, I want you to do something for me. And that's a great prayer. I mean, add that to your list of prayer tricks that you play. God, do something for me. I need a job. God, would you get me a job? I Do something for me. That, but that's a lane one prayer. It's a great place to start, but it's a terrible place to stop. Because there's prayers that we can play, pray in lane two. These prayers aren't just, God, I want you to do something for me. For me, you graduate to start asking, God, I want you to do something in me. Transform me. Don't just give me a job and give me, give me a good parking spot. Do something in me. Do some open heart surgery. Do some expansion of my heart. But even there, that's not the end game. The end game is this, and, and, and the lane three prayer is the one that Nehemiah prays. God, do something through me. That I, I believe in a God that is willing and able to do something for me. So I'm going to pray, God, do something for me, prayers. I also believe in a God who, who, who transforms from the inside out. So God, I'm going to continually pray to do, for you to do stuff in me. And yet, it's not just for me or in me. 
It's that I want to be used in my lifetime by you to do stuff through me. That the good work is my gap to fill, my problem to solve. And so I want you to do something through me. And so having cried and having prayed, Nehemiah stood. And he stood before the king. And he said in that moment, I've got a good work to do. And with your blessing, I want to get about doing it. He was 1,500 kilometers away. Wasn't his problem. He was employed. He could have kept just going to work. Taking on a paycheck. And one day, popping his clogs and getting buried. He could have giggled with his brothers. <laughs> they can't build a wall. <laughs> God should have called the Italians. They would have got it done by now. And yet he stood and he said, you know what, God? I pray that you do something through me. And from 1,500 kilometers away, he set sights and set the course of his life oriented towards being used by God to do the good work that we're going to explore over these next few weeks. And if you're a smarter Alec Bible person and you've already read the story, the story of Nehemiah, me too. I've preached on it. I've had encouraging emails sent to me on Monday mornings when I've preached on it about stuff that people cry about. Uh, if, if you're familiar with this story, let this series be an opportunity for God to help you level up. If you're not familiar with this story, then this should be like, wow, what an intriguing, unfolding drama this is. Um, but in all of it, this is not theory. This is not someone else's story. This is not past the Bible quiz. This is God. What's the good work that you have for me to do? And I mentioned at the beginning of my message, there's probably three groups in here, generally speaking. You know the good work that God's called you to do, and you're doing it, and I want you to ask God, how can you increase my effectiveness in that? What does that look like? Group number two, you know what the good work is, or you have a level of clarity, but you haven't started that, whatever it is, that your prayer is, God, remove the obstacles, fear, anxiety, circumstances, lack of resource, lack of obvious opportunity. And then those of you that are like, a good work? Really? I didn't know that. That this series, this, this would be, wow. Like, that has given me some fresh hope, understanding that I was created on purpose for a purpose. So I want you to stand this morning. We're going to sing this song, Oceans, again. And on face value, this song and the lyrics looks like it only applies to the group number two, the ones that know the calling but aren't yet doing it. Yet I would encourage you just to open your heart because there's some things that group one, you know the good work and you're doing the good work, but maybe there's some things within the good work that you need to do new or different or better or bigger, more confident, more boldly. And those of you... Those of you in group three, you know, maybe your step out of the boat is simply to say, God, what is it? 
What is it? And he says, you know what? I'm going to show you. I'm out of the boat. I'm going to tell you, but I want you to come to me. I ain't coming to you. And you go, let's see what happens. So let's just sing this song. Let it be a prayer. Let it be a cry of your heart in this space to really kickstart something over these next three, four weeks. It's a privilege to play our part in all that God is doing in and through you. To find out what your next step could be or to partner with us to reach more and more people by giving financially, head to our website elevatechurch.me and download our Elevate Church AU app, available wherever you download your apps.